Hello and welcome to How to Fail, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. Hosted by author and journalist Elizabeth Day. That's me. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. My guest this week on How to Fail is the author and journalist Satnam Sangira. A stellar columnist and feature writer on The Times, he's also the author of two books. His 2008 memoir, The Boy with the Top Knot, recounted his discovery in his 20s that his father and sister were living with schizophrenia. It was moving, profound, and often unexpectedly comic, and was shortlisted for the Costa. When the TV adaptation aired last year, Satnam had the slightly surreal, if not entirely unpleasant experience of seeing himself portrayed on screen by actor Sasha Dwan. As an award-winning journalist, Satnam has interviewed everyone from Sadiq Khan to Samuel L. Jackson. But before becoming a writer, he also worked in a sewing factory, at a burger chain, a hospital laundry, and once dressed up as a news bunny for live TV. Oh, and he graduated with a first in English from Cambridge. He's also someone who is constitutionally incapable of taking a compliment when it's delivered in person, so he's currently squirming with embarrassment opposite me. <laughs> yeah, can we get on to the failure? <laughs> You're more comfortable talking about your, your, your myriad failings. Yes, I'm, I feel flattered that you've asked me, that you thought of me when you had to I mean, you're do the first a podcast on failure. Mind. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> um, but why do you think you're so resistant to having nice things said about you? It's partly this Englishness, isn't it? You're the same. You're very bad at taking a compliment. But also it's the Indian thing, because my mum always always say, whenever someone praised you, or if you if you laughed, she, she would always say, you'll cry twice as much later. <laughs> and it's that Indian thing. I, also, I think it also exists in Turkish culture, where if you're a very beautiful baby, they put black mark on your face, because to be admired is to attract the evil eye. And so to be admired is just not something I enjoy. That's so interesting because I would have thought that then writing a memoir would be entirely counterintuitive because you're drawing attention to yourself. Yeah, but you're drawing attention to all your failings, <laughs> mainly. And also, with your first book, I don't know if you had this, I just didn't really expect anyone to read it. I wrote it for my mates. I think if I'd known it would turn into what it turned into, it would have completely paralysed me. I think writing with an audience in mind is very different to writing, you know, for yourself. Because it is an amazing book and the TV adaptation was beautifully done and critically acclaimed and BAFTA nominated. I can take the credit for the for the film because I didn't make it. So I can, okay. I I can take the compliments <laughs> when it comes to that. But yeah, another book, it's like having a baby. Not that I've had a baby, but you know what it's like. You, you write something and it has a life of its own. And it's been 10 years since I wrote it. So it's weird that last night it was the BAFTAs and Anu Palmer played my dad was up for a BAFTA and it feels completely nothing to do with me. It kind of has a life of its own, doesn't it? But I read somewhere that at the first read-through, it was very emotional for you when you saw these actors basically playing parts of your life. Well, yeah, and it was really intense, and partly because I chose not to be involved, or I only got involved for short times. So I read the script, and then I go to bed for three days because it was so stressful to read. You know, it deals with the most painful things I have ever been through, so it wasn't a massive amount of fun. Mm. in that way and it's everyone's alive fortunately all my family so it's weird walking into a room and seeing 10 actors sitting opposite me who are all playing members of my family 
So how did you find it in preparation for this interview coming up with incidents of failure in your life? Well, I started off thinking, God, I can't think of any failures. And I was literally going to talk about my Uber rating, which, which is, is higher than yours, right? No, no. Mine's Sanam, we've had this discussion. Have we? I think... Yours is lower. Uh, no, I'm 4.67. I'm 4.66. So okay. we have similar levels of failure. I mean, mine's higher, so not that similar. But, but that's fine. quite low for Uber, isn't it? <laughs> I think that... <laughs> I don't like to think of it as low as much as there's room for improvement. There's room for betterment. <laughs> I'm actually massively offended that my Uber rating is that, though. Yeah. Because I think I'm a really nice passenger. I can imagine you'd be quite bossy when needed. It's what? Not, I can definitely I'm be bossy. I'm not bossy at all. I have no... I don't care what route we take. I'm completely in the hands of the driver. It's just that I don't like to talk that much. Yeah. Because I talk every day of my life for a living and ask people questions. I don't want to have to do it in an Uber. We could stop this now if you want. Can we? I'd be <laughs> so much better. Um, no, so I was thinking I've got to talk about Uber rating. But actually, when you start writing down your failures, before I knew it, I had five sides of A4. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a lot of failures. Were they typed or handwritten? <laughs> oh, handwritten. But in a way, because one of my failures is handwriting. Right. I can't read back my handwriting 10 minutes after I've written it. You can't read back your own handwriting. Yeah. I've never heard of that before. Yeah, I don't know. There must be a word for it. Yeah, auto something. Either that or it's the beginning of dementia or something. Do you think your handwriting used to be better? It's it used because, to be excellent, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then I learned shorthand as a reporter. Did you? Um, I taught myself a version of shorthand that is... <laughs> that is probably legally not permissible in court. <laughs> no, but it yeah. leaves me a lot of leeway for making up symbols myself and saying that they mean something. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds pretty mad. But yes, so it got worse with shorthand, and now I write this weird form of writing, which is a combination of shorthand and, and handwriting, which I can make sense of for 10 minutes. So you were very good at school. That's something I gleaned from your memoir. So were you. Double first from Cambridge. <laughs> but let's talk about you, is it, today? No. <laughs> thank you, though. <laughs> but you were very good at school. And one of the things that you want to talk about as being one of your failures is your time at Cambridge. Because it was pretty amazing for you to get to Cambridge, wasn't it? Yeah, I guess I was the first person in my family to go to university of my siblings. And I was the youngest of four. Yeah, and the first one in my entire massive extended family to go to Oxbridge. So it was intense. Do you remember getting the letter saying that you got in? Yeah, I remember it really well. I can remember everything about it. It was a morning, I opened it, and I remember my dad saying, why can't you go to Wolverhampton? <laughs> Which is a very sweet thing to say, because yeah. he just wanted me to stay. I remember one of my sisters saying, where is Oxbridge, anyway? <laughs> and I remember my brother being almost in tears. Actually, it's quite, I find it hard to think about it. It's quite emotional. Mm. And my mum was obviously delighted because she knew what it meant, but she'd not been there. But equally, it was a very sad time because I was leaving home. I was the first one to, you know, the son leaving home was quite a big deal in a Punjabi family because you meant to stay and look after your family. And my family were going through a really bad time then. So I felt delighted, but also really guilty. And I think everyone was happy for me, but equally they were... There's a huge amount of poignancy about the whole thing. And they were going through a bad time just then because... My sister had just been committed. So, yeah, it was really painful. So my last year of, of school, A-levels, technically I was doing really well. You know, I was head boy. I'd got a 2E offer for Cambridge. Everyone else envied me. But at the same time, my sister was falling apart and our family were completely falling apart. I didn't even have the word schizophrenia because I didn't look into it that much. All I knew is that, you know, there had been violence 
and it had been very difficult and she'd been dragged away. And oddly, that summer, uh, I ended up working in the hospital laundry. So I was working this quite grim job cleaning sheets that were covered in blood and guts. <laughs> and my sister was in the same hospital, committed in a psychiatric unit. And I'd go to see her at lunchtime in my white coat and people would think I was a doctor because I was Asian. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was quite surreal. And I found it very difficult to navigate. So yeah. it was a really painful time. And actually, my parents went to India, which they'd never done before. My They hadn't done for a very long time. I think that was their way of dealing with it. They didn't want to see me leave home. So actually, it was my English teacher who drove me to Cambridge. It sounds like there are so many different lives going on there for one person. Like a lot of plates that you were juggling even the journey from the hospital laundry up to the ward where your sister was, the journey between your house in Wolverhampton to Cambridge. What was it like then arriving to this institution of higher education, which is amongst the most elite in the world? The one you went to? Yes. <laughs> it was, I was really excited, you know, in many ways, excited. But I found it really socially bewildering. This so, only, I think it's taken me 20 years to understand what happened. And there were kids there who were middle class who were pretending to be poor. Because that was a cool thing to do in the, in the late 90s, right? Because like, Oasis and Blur and all that stuff. I was poor. I was on a full grant. And I was aspirational. So I was pretending I wasn't. <laughs> I didn't want to particularly want to talk about it. I couldn't, even, I couldn't even make sense of it. There was that weird thing also. I don't know if you had this. As soon as you arrived, somehow everyone else seemed to know each other. And, I did, and then now I realise what happened. They all went to similar schools. They literally knew each other. Yeah. You know. Having done very well at school, in my grammar school, and being head boy, it was a completely different social milieu, and I just didn't understand it. I don't think I did particularly well. I made a couple of efforts. I remember running for, what's it called, the union, the college union. Yeah. I think I came JCR. last. JCR. Yeah, and I, wrote, I ran a joke campaign and came last. And I ran for varsity editorship. I mean, I was a music editor, and I ran with a news editor at the time, Dan Roan, who's now a sports editor at the BBC, and he had a similar background to me. And I remember them saying, we don't believe a word you said in that interview. And we didn't get it. And I was like, what the hell? I just didn't understand what was going on. And I think it's taken me a long time to understand that actually it was back class. That's so interesting. So this is one of your failures that you've, you've um, told me about, which is the, the social failure at Cambridge. Yeah, although um, I basically made three friends. Right. And they've all felt the same. So that, there was solidarity in that. And... All of us have ended up doing very similar things in the sense that, you know, one of them was John Oliver, who's now gone on to be a massive TV star. But Never he did, heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> he was, I mean, he did quite, I mean, quite well at Cambridge in that he was, I think, president of Footlights. But he never enjoyed it. He never felt part of it. He was from Bedford. Lachlan from Scotland now, TV presented to and an artist. I think what happened as a result of us not being massively socially engaged is that we put all our efforts into developing our passions. Yeah. You know, so I was freelancing for The Telegraph in my second year. Uh, Lachlan was painting, doing exhibitions. John was performing. And so it was actually a real gift to, to be rejected by the Cambridge establishment because I think I did a lot of bad writing and uh, got it out of my system. I think there's something so interesting about British class because it's about people who know the rules and the stuff being left unsaid that is almost as important as the stuff being said. And it sounds to me like you've had quite a lot of that in your, in your life, of stuff being left unsaid that's sometimes the most important thing. Yeah, it's different forms of inarticulacy. I think the British Punjabis are very inarticulate. I, don't, I can't particularly talk about mental illness 
or money and things like that. But they're quite articulate with emotions, whereas the English aren't particularly good at emotional stuff. So if you add it all together, you get a lot of unsaid things. So were you unhappy at Cambridge? I think I was confused and homesick. But I loved the course. So I loved the course. And so I read a lot, studied a lot and did a lot of journalism. Did you do a dissertation? I did. What was it on? I did London in the Modern Novel. Yeah. Yeah. Have I told you that before? You've told me that before. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't realise I'd asked you that before as well. What? I'm not from London. And weirdly, I've always been in love with London. I've always wanted to come here. I think you do. If you want to live a life of the mind and you grow up in the provinces like you did um, and I did, your escape is London, right? Mm-hmm. It's a world city at the end of the l- railway. And so always wanted to be here. You talk in your memoir about part of your social failure in Cambridge being just not going out with anyone. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I, I I didn't have a girlfriend for three years. That's kind of bizarre because I had one before at school and I had one <laughs> straight afterwards. And so did Lachlan. He had one. Once the, the week we graduated, we all got girlfriends. I think that was partly there were three of us and we needed each other and we just didn't want to lose them. So we stopped each other. We jeopardised each other's love lives <laughs> just so that we had a mate. It's a bit like the in-betweeners, but yeah. uh, at Cambridge. <laughs> Do you think you learned anything from, from not academically, obviously you did learn something academically first, but do you think you learned anything from those three years of social failure? Oh, absolutely. I learned so much about how the upper middle class people work without even realising I was learning it. And it was a great preparation for Fleet Street, which mm. is full of these people. And so that was really useful. And also I put my effort elsewhere. And so... I'd rather be slightly miserable for three years at university and then love real life. And occasionally I meet people who were there with me and they look back at their university years as the greatest years of their life. And I just think that's a bit sad. You wrote an amazing piece recently for The Times about access to Oxbridge. What do you think, are are those universities doing enough right now to encourage access? It's taken me so long to understand what's going on there because if you've personally come from nowhere and you end up at Oxbridge and you end up at Police Street and you do quite well, it's very hard to realise that you're just an exception to the rule. So I, I, I used to believe in grammar schools. I thought Oxbridge was fine. I thought Fleet Street didn't have a problem. And now, 20 years later, I'm like, oh, actually, grammar schools don't work. <laughs> they allow a few tokens like me. Fleet Street has a massive problem with, with diversity. And Oxbridge, basically, the odds are against you if you didn't go to certain public schools. But now I can see it very clearly. And I love doing that piece because I think something is about to change, you know, and it's good to be part of the building momentum. Did your parents come and visit you in Cambridge? Oh, God, yes. Yeah, they did. My, my brother also very sweetly drove me down every term. Unbelievably painful because my mum would just sit there and cry. <laughs> because she was so sad that you yeah. weren't living at home. Even no, she said, because now all my nephews and nieces, I've got six nephews and nieces, all at university. And she was saying the other day, she was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry I cried so much because now I don't care they, they, that, that they're leaving. I know they're going to come back. It's because you were the first. And it wasn't just her. It was like my brother was crying too. Everyone just got really upset <laughs> constantly. They only calmed down in the third year, by which point I was like, Jesus, this is leaving a bit late. Mm-hmm. So it was just fraught with guilt and pain for no reason. I didn't achieve anything. Yeah. I'm sure you've been asked this several hundred times but I'm just going to ask you it again how has your family reacted to the TV drama? They loved it probably more than me because with the book too I spent majority of my energy went into making sure they were happy with it so everything in the book is there with their permission 
I added things they wanted me to. I took out things they wanted me to. With the script, I sat down and talked to them at length. My mum only realised, I think, halfway into a four-hour conversation that it wasn't a documentary. <laughs> and then she was like, I don't care, it's, it's actors. But they all loved it. And I, I really wanted to make sure they were part of it. And so they came to a couple of the screenings and they loved it. My brother was a bit upset that the actor playing him um, wasn't built enough because mm-hmm. my brother's a bodybuilder. That was the only complaint, really. But yeah, it was an amazing experience for them. For me, mainly much more stressful because I felt responsibility. Because your dad doesn't read English, so hasn't read your book. My dad, he's very unwell. So he's got one of the symptoms of schizophrenia is that some people have awareness, some people don't. He doesn't have much awareness. So he's unaware of the whole thing. His life is unchanged by my career and my writing. Mm. So, you know, it makes no difference to him, really. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. The Anime Awards this year were amazing! And I'm still not over all of the amazing live musical performances. Honestly, same. The Anime Awards may be over, but our discussion is not. If, like us, you're still not over the Anime Awards show and the results, join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. Listening each week to our breakdown of everything that happened at the 2024 Anime Awards and hear news on the other anime and pop culture that you care about. If you don't want to miss all the post-Anime Awards discussion, then tune in to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Do you think, thinking more broadly, because you've done an enormous amount of work, unconsciously and otherwise, in raising mental health as a necessary thing to talk about and not to hide and not to feel ashamed or secretive over, is there a broader point to be made here about does society as a whole view mental health issues as a failure of some sort? Well, I feel like I haven't done a massive amount, mainly because... I ran away from it for such a long time. I mean, I vaguely knew my my father and sister were unwell and I, I ran away to London and wrote about the media and celebrities. Also, when I'm offered opportunities now to talk about it or go on to boards of charities, I almost always say no because it, it's cost so much of my personal life. I can't stand spending any more energy, putting any more energy into it. I find it drains me. I find it exhausting because two of the closest people in my life have a very difficult disease. So if anything, I feel bad I'm not doing enough. Mm. In terms of awareness, I I tend to do one thing a year. I agree to one thing. So I'm doing something this year. I'm doing a keynote address at the Royal College of Psychiatrists annual convention. And I'm talking about this, about mental health awareness. I actually think some of the campaigns haven't had positive results. People are more aware, but it's also created confusion. I mean, people confuse anxiety schizophrenia they're two very difficult different illnesses and actually you could say they have opposite symptoms and i think when you're talking about severe mental illness it's much much more difficult than 
depression, which has lots of advocates, almost no advocates for schizophrenia because a lot of people who have it can die young. The symptoms are really difficult. These are people, more often than not, you will cross the road to avoid. And they often don't turn into celebrities who are going to have massive campaigns, you know. So, yeah, it's difficult. I think it's much more complicated than it seems. And also, for people with my father and my sister's condition, it can be slightly annoying that there's been increased awareness and therefore more need for resources. And the resources remain the same. So you've got people with very serious illnesses chasing the same resources as some people with mild anxiety. And I think that hasn't helped. Controversial, I realise, to say that. That's fascinating. Yeah. How will you write that speech? (laughs) How long does the speech have to be? Well, as ever, anything to do with the subject, I'm leaving to the last minute because it's not a fun thing to say. But I think it's important. I think there's also this whole, it's become an industry. The wellness industry is trading off this mental health thing. And it's wellness and mindfulness It's completely different from depression. Mm. I mean, there's so much confusion happening at the moment. And there's always like magazines now, like Happy, Happy Fall magazine, where they talk about depression like it's something you can just get out of your head by being positive. So I just think it's created a lot of confusion. One of the things that you mention in your memoir, and anyone who follows you on social media will know, is that... Brexit. Uh, <laughs> I was actually going to say George Michael. Is that oh. George Michael got you through some of the dark times of your life. <laughs> See, I'm <laughs> laughing, but it's deadly serious. Yes, I know. I'm I know. very wary of bringing this up because I don't want to make you emotional. <laughs> I, have a, I have irony about George. I know what people think. I know people think he's ridiculous. He was ridiculous. His music was a bit silly. But I will never disown him. He did amazing things to people. <laughs> uh, when when he died, the stories that emerge after his death about the fact that he'd paid for a couple's IVF and was, it's not about him. But for me, it's not about I'm the sorry. person. Take it back. I could have met him several times and I never did. I always left the room because for me, it's not about the person. It's not even about the image. For me, it was about the music because basically, you're growing up in an immigrant household, right? This is my justification. You don't have people in your life to tell you what's tasteful and what's not tasteful. You just respond to things in a pure way. So we heard Club Tropicana, and I was like, that is the most amazing sound I've ever heard in my life. I then grew up, and you go to grammar school in Cambridge, and you end up on Saturday Review, and you're like, I, I know I know the artistic reasons why Club Tropicana is not great art, but still, it meant a huge amount for me. I will not disown the, the effect that you had on me. You know, I just... Also, growing up in a very difficult household, it was pure escapism. You want pure pop music. Which is why Bollywood is, is, does so well in India. I mean, Bollywood fans suffering in extreme poverty, and yet they still want to go and watch an escapist Bollywood movie. So that's what it means to me. It's escapism. And also, actually, he went from writing really cheerful pop music to really depressing, actually quite good soul music. That's probably the journey of my teenage years. What's your all-time <laughs> favourite George Michael track? See, I, I detect mockery in your question. No, that is um, not... I was thinking what mine was, that's all. <laughs> no mockery. No, I had a place for Kylie not... on my wall, so... I loved Kylie too. Well, I mean, that's correct. You're right to love Kylie. The thing is, I think you can love Jay-Z and you can like George. It's, both yeah. things are possible. My favourite George song, that's difficult, man. <sighs> I can't, I can't... I can't you most trauma. Favorite. No, this is the one I'd pick, because everyone knows it's freedom, probably. Love that one. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. Okay. Um, no one dislikes that, surely. No, it's excellent. And the video was amazing as well. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't in it, for one thing. Was that the <laughs> one with all the supermodels in it? Yeah. yeah. Because one of your failings, 
you've said is that you failed to learn an instrument. Yes, I did. If I'm allowed to be a bit earnest, I went to a, a private school on a fully assisted place. So Mrs. Thatcher paid for my fees. My parents couldn't, the, the annual fees were more than my parents earned in a year. A lot of the kids in my year were middle-class kids and they all learned instruments and a lot of them did. And I remember desperately, because I was really into music, stuff beyond George. <laughs> it was like the thing in my life that I adored the most. I remember asking my mum if I could learn an instrument and she said, no, we can't afford it. And I, I don't think my childhood was actually quite happy in many ways, but that's the one thing I feel bad about. I just... I actually occasionally think, God, I wish we weren't so poor. <laughs> what instrument would you have learned? Piano, probably. But I actually think it's worked out okay. Like many journalists, I began as a music journalist. Did you? No. <laughs> no? Were you a literary journalist? No, I was a diarist. Oh, diarist. On London's diary. Yeah. A lot of male writers are frustrating musicians, in my experience. Ah. And a lot of journalists, feature writers, started off as music journalists. So... I'd met a lot of musicians, wrote a lot about music, had a relationship with a musician. And I have realised something now, which is writing is better. (laughs) (laughs) Writing is better than being a musician. It just involves more intellect. I mean, in a way, you're creating your own symphony from words. (laughs) Yeah, your own terrible sound. Also, one thing I really realised about so much art is that being a fan is a wonderful thing. You don't have to meet George Michael. You don't have to meet your favourite writers. Actually, meeting them slightly ruins your enjoyment of the work. I've interviewed authors I've admired for decades, and then you can't read their book for a couple of years. Have you interviewed Salman Rushdie? (laughs) Yes. It's weird how you knew that. Um, Yes, I have. You've never told me that, by the way. I just know that you like Salman Rushdie's work. Yeah, I do like his work. And that's the thing, I mean... You don't need to people see how are imperfect. People are imperfect. Yeah, you know, and it's definitely the case with music. I do think one of the greatest pleasures in life is to go to a gig and not not go backstage. You don't know the musicians. You just enjoy it. It's it's an incredibly pure feeling. And also, I think there's more of a career in writing than in music. It's really difficult music. So I'm actually glad. See, I hate going to gigs because I hate having to stand. <laughs> You're very tall. You imagine you can see everything. I am tall, yes. I am. <laughs> and I can see things. I just don't like, I don't like to have to pay to then stand on some sticky floor that's got Red Bull spilled on it from decades previously. Oh, really? I find uh, gigs are the most, aren't they the, the most enjoyable form of art? Like a live gig. What's I mean, more enjoyable than that? Don't say the theatre. No, I would never say the theatre. Yeah. I, I think in a, going to the cinema and seeing an incredible film yeah. in the middle of the day on your own is... I'm possibly revealing too much about yeah, myself. Yeah, missing you out on daylight. And... <laughs> no, I get what... I, I have been to some great gigs in my time, but I feel that they're few and far between. Oh, no, I, I feel very differently. What's the greatest gig you've ever been to? That's like the George Michael question. Yeah. Probably Frank Ocean. Yeah. Brixton Academy. I love Brixton Academy, because it's just that something about that venue. is slightly sloped, and so it feels very intimate. And something about Brixton, too. I love it there. Do you think, because you do do an enormous amount of interviews, do you think... Not as many as you. <laughs> I actually don't do very many more, very many at all. Well, the ones you do make more impact. <laughs> but do you... I don't do celebrities anymore, partly because I... You did Sadiq Khan. I, I, obviously a politician. I a politician. I don't do many celebrities anymore because um, I'm so rude. And the PRs get a sense that you're going to be rude. And as we know, they pick people who are going to be nice, which is why they pick you. 
Well, that makes me sound like a shit journalist. No, but also people don't want to read. Feel, I mean, people don't want to read feel, beef. Feel free to contradict me there, <laughs> by the way. Look, I'm not going to indulge you in this weird <laughs> lack of self-esteem you have. But people also don't want to read beef about celebrities necessarily. Like, like your Kylie interview. I don't want to read dirt about Kylie. I want to read about well, how great she is. That's interesting. I quite like reading about beef, but that's not the kind of interviewer I am. I'm always more interested in who someone actually is. Yeah. But my question to you was whether you think having done interviews has made you better at analysing yourself. No, I think I did interviews all wrong in my 20s. I don't know if you did this. The way to accelerate your career as a feature writer in your 20s is to be introduced to your heroes and very successful people and be incredibly rude. Yes. You did that? I did. I was so rude about so many people. I don't actually regret much of them, but there's been three or four people I've apologised to. Me too. There was one big person I apologised to. It was obviously what we were trying to do. I was trying to impress our bosses. And also because you assume you're never going to see them again. But then life is long. Mm. And suddenly not only are they at a party, you then sometimes have to have professional relationships with these people. And life is complicated. And also then, and you've had this experience, then you get interviewed badly. And you realise that actually, if you're being a bit arsy that day, maybe something's going wrong in your life and actually give them a bit of slack. Are you someone who has regrets or not? You know what? I don't think I do. Not many. There's a couple of people I've apologised to professionally, but I stand by a lot of my stuff. No, I don't really have many regrets. There's probably one or two relationships I wish I hadn't had. But that's it. One relationship. I hope she's listening. <laughs> What's her name and surname and address? (laughs) She'll know. Is that because you feel that you learn a lot from mistakes, that you don't have regrets, I mean, is that...? It's partly coming from nowhere, because whatever happens, I know I've done better than anyone else I grew up with. Actually, you know what? It's partly my best friend died when I was about 22. He died of cancer, and it's like his story has put a mental block in how low I can ever go. So if something's going really bad for me, I always think, actually, you know what? I'm alive. <laughs> and James never got to see this. So there's that as well. Is that a really morbid answer? Sorry. No, it's a beautiful answer. Yeah. yeah. And also, actually, it's being sick. You know, I got really sick in my 20s with a very exotic brain parasite and uh, ended up in three hospitals. And I think a near-death experience in your 20s can be really focus your mind. You know, it made me take a lot of risks. So I've left, twice left two brilliant jobs to write books. And that's because I always think James and also me, I just think, could not be here. Might as well do it. Did you get a chance to say goodbye to James? I did, but I was so young and it was the first person I'd lost. So obviously as you get older, you you realise, I realised I would have done it in a different way. But I'm glad I did. I remember writing... I was a news reporter in the FT and he was in a band and um, I remember just concocting this completely stupid news story just to get his picture in the FT with his unsigned band. He came and stayed with me. I remember him saying to me, he stayed a weekend and he kept on saying, wow, God, your life, wow. And all I was was like a graduate trainee in the newspaper. But from where we were from, it was wow. It was incredible. Just like leaving Wolverhampton was amazing. And so I always think of that. And like everything that's happened to me since, it's like, I wonder what he would have made it. Also, I wonder what he would have done. So 
Yes, sorry, morbid. No, really, um, really moving, actually. I, there is no seamless link from that to the other failure you've given me. Are we back to our Uber ratings? <laughs> We've done the Uber ratings. <laughs> Have we done fear of death? Are you scared of dying yourself? No, I don't think I am. I'm, That's I'm, good. Well, I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll crap myself when it's about <laughs> to happen. But no, people always say I'm obviously morose. But I see myself as a constructive pessimist, you know. Expect the worst, hope for the Prepare best. Prepare for the worst. Expect the worst. Some, Plan yeah. for the worst. Prepare for the best. <laughs> something, <laughs> something like that. Yes. What's it? Expect the worst. Plan for... No. It's something... Oh, anyway, the point is it makes you realistic. <laughs> and so I'm just very realistic. Everything's a bonus. Yeah. I don't, I've never expected anything. I have no ambitions. I've never expected anything in my life. My only ambition in life was to be a journalist. And so that happened when I was about 22. I sometimes really pity people like David Cameron and Boris Johnson who want to be prime minister. And obviously David achieved that. But it's a curse because nothing's ever going to be fun for them, is it? Until they've achieved that ambition. Do you think you're good at being in the present? Weirdly, in a miserable way, I am. It's a really negative form of mindfulness. But yeah, I think I am. I, I regularly do stuff just because I think... It's important to make memories, as it were. But you're good at not overplanning your diary. This is the conversation we've had many times because I overplan. So you're quite yeah, good at your not... diary is like a form of mental disorder. Yeah. And actually just listening to your diary makes me stressed out. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it makes you happy. Does it make you happy? I don't know if it does make me happy. <laughs> I suppose uh, my fear is that, that someday I'll stop being asked to do things or meet people. That's not going to happen. Really? No. Okay. Would you still ask me to do stuff? Can <laughs> we also, have that deal? You might actually enjoy not doing so much stuff. So I do a lot. I mean, a lot of my friends and, and you take the mickey out of my Instagram, which is a private account, where every picture is the same. So I will often go and walk for two, three hours a day on the same route in Hampstead and across Hampstead Heath. But it makes me happy. So I do it. <laughs> you used to run across Hampstead Heath. Yes. This is my seamless link now. Here it is. Yeah. Because on, on gradients. This is a long-running joke about how I don't like to run up hills, but I can run on the flat. And I can run up hills, it's just that I choose not to, yeah. in much of the same way as I choose not to go to gigs that will make me depressed. <laughs> but if push came to stop, I could run up a hill. And I yeah. do. Anyway, you used to be like a serious runner. Well, not serious. Serious compared to the fact that I was never a runner. We used to run for like four hours. Yeah, like Forrest Gump. My Forrest Gump years. I would run everywhere. It was bizarre. I would like run probably five, six miles a day in the Heath. Wherever I went, and as you, you know, when you're an author, you go to places, I'd run. So I'd go to Bath and I'd run. I'd go to, on a Wait, story. You'd run to Bath? No, I'd, I'd arrive to, in Bath and then oh. I'd run for five, oh, six okay. miles. It was a great way to see everywhere. It's a good way to see a city. I would run along the beach in Goa and be chased by dogs and children and cows. I ran in Rio. It was an incredible thing. It was an incredible... Nothing in my life has made me as happy as running. Wow, that's yeah, a that's, huge thing to say. I know, especially given I can't do it anymore. But um, yeah, it was an incredible feeling. So what age were you when this kicked it's in? It my 30s. It was a really odd thing. Unexpected development. Everyone around me couldn't quite make sense of it. And now I don't run anymore because I tore my hamstring. It's like it never happened. So what made you run in the first... Can you remember the first run in that period of time that you took? Yeah, it was agonising. I always thought I'd never be a runner, you know. It's, when you start running, it's really painful, isn't it? Mm. And uh, you feel like you're going to die. 
But then, I, like Forrest, I just kept running. <laughs> but what was the impetus to take that first run? Do you remember? Was there something in your life? Because my impetus to take up running was when I was going through a divorce and I wanted to remind myself that I could propel myself just through my own sheer bloody-mindedness and like physical force of will. And that was really important for me to be able to move when another part of my life was in a state of stasis. You know what? This is such a bloody cliche and there's so many memoirs about this. But yeah, it was the same. It was a heartbreak. Mm. It's like literally trying to run away from your pain. It's like when you're running... You know, the physical pain overtakes the emotional pain. That's my theory. I think we should have no more books on this subject, though. <laughs> I agree with you. But I was very quickly over the pain, and then I just carried on running. I carried on running in Wolverhampton, which is odd because uh, no one runs in Wolverhampton. You could tell people were, like, thinking about calling the police. <laughs> also, you just get chased by dogs a lot if you're a brown person in Wolverhampton. And this led to my theory about some dogs being racist which my family ridiculed me for years. But now there's been a paper written on it. Apparently dogs can be raised. Certain breeds of dogs or just how they're raised? Yes, how they're raised. They reflect the prejudices of their owners. So in London, very rarely get chased by dogs. Wolverhampton always get chased by dogs. Almost always. What's that about? It's why you like cats. I like cats too, yeah. Like you. Although you did have a pet cat who hated you. Yes, Harry. <laughs> some, some cats are bad. Anyway, so, so <laughs> as, as you mentioned there, you tore your hamstring. Did that happen while you were running? Yeah, I was preparing for a marathon in, in a mad way. It was during the 2012 Olympics. So I remember it really well because I suddenly couldn't run and I found it so painful. I missed it so much. I couldn't watch half the Olympics. I just couldn't stand watching people run because I missed it so much. Even now when I can't sleep, I imagine doing my old route. Because hmm. one of your failures is failure at sport. During my um, running period, one of the things that really struck me is that throughout my childhood... No one ever encouraged me to do sport. And if anything, it became a running joke, as it were, that I was crap at sport. And it was like, as soon as I did it, I was like, I'm not crap. I'm completely okay. And I think it's that thing, is if you're the class nerd or you're good at a lot of academic subjects, people expect you to be crap at sport. There's those kind of 1970s and 1980s PE teachers who just kind of encouraged everyone. And so I was always last to be picked. I bet you were too. No. Why? Maybe Why you were good you at netball that? or something. I like was that. actually quite good at netball, yeah. but rubbish at everything else. Your height. <laughs> well, I wasn't always <laughs> so freakishly tall. And I never... Um, I did play hockey. These are all things I play, but I just yeah. was... I, I wouldn't even say distinctly average. I think I was distinctly below average. Hockey is like one of those sports that people who are crap at sport, like me, were quite good at. Hockey was the one thing I would play. But the thing that annoyed me about hockey is that you could only use one side of the stick. That just seems so stupid to me. Yes. You know, uh, I think India have won almost no Olympic medals ever. And yet they've won Olympic medals for hockey. Oh. So this reflects my theory. Yeah. That people who are bad at sport are actually good at hockey. It's like a non-sport. But how did you cope with your, with your, with your, when it sounds like you don't actually think you failed at sport, it's other people failed you. Yeah, I felt, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think I would have been good at it, but equally i mean jesus as a teacher surely your duty is to encourage people to do things you know and if you don't you i just gave up so i never did it i wish i had so it's more about their failure i guess what's the lesson of that story i don't know you're gonna tell me aren't you (laughs) i should have thought about this shouldn't i i guess just because other people think you're going to be a failure it doesn't mean you will be do you think of yourself as a success yeah is that that a weird thing to say yes no no just because Everyone, all my family worked in factories. And that was all all was expected of me was I would maybe get an admin job in a local bank. 
because the most successful person I knew was one of my cousins who was an assistant bank manager in Birmingham Midshires. And that was all that was expected of me. So, yeah, I guess I'm a success compared to that. What did you do in the sewing factory? The thing is, the sewing factory, I realise, I've realised as a result of therapy. I've all, throughout my life, I've kind of joked about it and said, you know, I remember when I applied to Cambridge, you had to, in the UCAS form, you had to list any jobs you had. And I wrote, child slave labour, seven years. And I remember the tutor having a good old guffaw at that. And this is what, what I wanted as a reaction. But it wasn't a joke, actually. I think it slightly scarred me. And, um, you know, I was working in a factory for up to 90 hours a week at the age of 10. I was using heavy machinery. It'd be illegal to do that now. And not only that, I was doing more work than any of the adults because I my mum worked in the factory and I wanted her to be proud. They still never gave me a pay rise. It was 50p an hour. And when I think about that, and I think about it in relation to learning an instrument, the thousands of hours I did in the factory, I could have learned an instrument. I could have learned a language. So it was wasted time. And that's the only aspect of my childhood that slightly embitters me because I think it's wasted time. And I remember at school, the first year of this posh school, we had to do a summer project. And all the kids came back with these incredible projects their parents had obviously helped them with, being printed out and with amazing pictures. And I did a project on the factory and how they made a blouse. And I tried to type it on my sister's typewriter with full of spelling mistakes. I've still got it. And I look at it and I just think, why didn't anyone realise I was being exploited? (laughs) You know, it wasn't a joke. You know, I was spending every weekend of my first year at school and all the summer holidays at this bloody factory being illegally employed. But I think it was beyond their experience. That probably never happened in the history of Wolverhampton Grammar School. But I wish someone would help help me. Do you think you use humour as deflection? I think we all do. It's an English thing, isn't it? And I've just watched Patrick Melrose. I mean, often people in Britain use humour to deflect from serious abuse. But I think we journalists sometimes have a tendency to turn everything into a charming anecdote. And actually, there can be a lot of pain there, Mm. you know. Yeah, I think the whole factory thing is much more complicated than I've ever really talked about or admitted to myself. You said this really beautiful thing in an interview that you gave, which I'm going to embarrassingly (laughs) quote back to you. You said that if you're not embarrassed by the person you were 10 years ago, then you're probably not trying to live life deeply enough. How how embarrassed are you by the person you were 10 years ago? You know what? I'm not that embarrassed. Obviously, I'm slightly embarrassed by some of my choices. But I'm very different. And it's good that you're growing, right? When I think of my younger self, I don't know if you have this feeling, I just envy my younger self. I'm just full of confidence. Mm. I don't know where it came from. With all my nephews and nieces now, I think there's a whole new generation of um, kids who are growing up in a much more anxious world. I think it's sort of social networking. And I didn't have any of that. I don't know how I had the confidence to go from Wolverhampton to Fleet Street. It's an incredible amount of... I mean, I, I got rejected three, four hundred times. You know, I couldn't get any work experience. I think I got one or two work experience slots. And it was just a complete fluke I ended up on Fleet Street. How did you end up on Fleet Street? The Financial Times. And basically the way it worked is that there was a guy in a year ahead of me at a college, Indian guy, Gautam Malkani. He'd got into the FT scheme. And uh, I applied, I rang him and said, what did they ask you? He told me every question they asked him. And they asked every single question. And a lot of the questions I never would have been able to answer. So stuff like, 
how do you feel about the Indian budget? And I'd learned the answer off by heart by learning The Economist. What are the arguments for and against monetary union? I wouldn't be able to answer that question now. But I, I gave a fluent five-minute answer. <laughs> so it just shows you, actually, connections, right? But he was a, like a working-class kid from Hounslow who's become a novelist too. And um, so I got a lucky break with that, you know? And the second part of that quote was about living life deeply enough. Do you think you are living life deeply enough today? I think I've lived it too deeply. I think you can take it too far. <laughs> in that, I feel like if I have a midlife crisis, it would be a reverse midlife crisis, in that I haven't done the normal things. It's like we've travelled the world, right? And we've um, met all our heroes and written books and done the things people always want to do, right? But I've not had a family and babies. And even more basic, I've never owned a car <laughs> and I haven't got a garden. So I find myself... You've got a roof terrace. Go, it's not quite enough. I always wanted a garden. And so I find myself longing to do the basic things. It's because when there's a choice, I always take the challenging choice. But now I'm thinking, maybe I should save for my, for my pension and uh, buy a house with a garden and a second-hand Mercedes. <laughs> like all my uncles. I feel like you should aspire to a new Mercedes. Think so? Oh, they're yeah. a waste of money, though. See, I'm ultimately, uh, <laughs> I ultimately am my uncle's. So, yeah, it's a weird way to live your life, really, isn't it? Yeah. So do you think, you don't think you're living deeply enough? No, I think I've lived... I've lived. You've led too deeply and now you want to be more shallow. I want to be more shallow and more basic. Okay. Am I getting there? Yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think you're succeeding at being more basic. Yeah, thank No, you. I don't think you'll ever escape your own depth, but that's a good thing. Yeah, I, I think there's sometimes a lot to be said for just doing things out of routine. Sometimes. Yeah. There's a, a great book called um, What Matters Most. It's a therapy book, but it's very acclaimed. And his theory in it is the secret of life is to fail at ever greater things. The idea being that I think one of the examples he uses is children, is that when people have children and you ask them, are you happy? They'll say, no, I'm knackered. I hate every minute of it. I'm tired. I can't do the things I want to do. But if you ask them, do you regret your decision? They'll say, no because it adds meaning to my life. But I think it's not just children you can do that with. Actually, that applies to many things. So writing books is really hard. It often makes authors really embittered and unhappy, but they're failing at every greater thing. You're trying your best. You're making the best of life. So I think that's what it's about, basically. I love that, and it's an excellent note to end on. Fail at ever greater things. Of course, it links to the theme. It does. I yes. thought you'd done that on purpose. No, I completely forgot your theme. It was <laughs> it was serendipity. Satnam Sangira, thank you so much. 